Akemashite, Amaretogazai Mas, and welcome back to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and Researcher of Japanese War Heritage. This week, for our first episode of 2021, we are joined by Dr. Jamie Coates, anthropologist and lecturer in East Asian Studies at the University of Sheffield, to look at migrant communities in Tokyo and Japan at large, exploring how the liminal space of Ikebukuro has fostered a multinational district and understanding how attitudes towards Japan have changed amongst its denizens. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Jamie. Thank you for joining us in the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ali. It's really great to be here. So, first of all, we'd like to know a bit more about you. So, can you tell us about your field and how your interests have brought you there? Well, so I'm an anthropologist by training, but my undergraduate training actually spanned quite a few different fields because I did a fairly ambitious double bachelor's at the Australian National University, where uh, I did both a degree in East Asian studies. And also a degree in political science and anthropology.、Um, and then after that, I continued in the field of anthropology, but working in various East Asian contexts. But I guess to kind of know a little bit more about me, I think it's important to kind of point out that I grew up in Australia at a time where government policy and also just kind of、uh, popular culture and everyday discussions. In many parts of Australia, had really sort of pivoted towards seeing Australia as more so part of Asia and the Pacific than Europe. So,、um, you've probably noticed that there are quite a lot of Australian academics in East Asian studies, kind of at、mm. my career stage, if maybe a little bit more advanced or a little bit more junior. I'm sort of in the middle of that cohort. And that's really a, a, a big product of that pivot. So, you know, growing up in Australia, You know, a lot of us had quite a lot of exposure to East Asian culture, particularly Japanese culture, but also, you know, Southeast Asian, Chinese, Korean to a less extent, I would say, at that time. And so, you know, to know a bit about me, I was very much one of those East Asian studies stereotypes, I'm afraid, that、um, I was really <laughs> into martial arts in my teens in particular. And that led to a curiosity about a whole range of East Asian cultures, particularly、uh, philosophy. And、uh, yeah, so that's kind of where I was, where I started. And that's where I found anthropology, which, for those of you who perhaps aren't so familiar, anthropology is a, a fairly broad church that. Uh, is about the study of what it means to be human, or、um, I actually prefer to say what it means to be a person. And so it kind of ties big theoretical and philosophical questions to the study of particular places and contexts. And、um, so I found that really helpful that thinking through both China and Japan has been one of the ways in which I've kind of learned a lot about what it means to be a society or a culture. And a whole range of other kinds of interesting puzzles that I've、uh, become interested in as my career has progressed.、Mm-hmm. It's a very diverse background and、uh, research approach. Can I just ask what's the difference between being a person and being human? 
Ah, okay. So I wrote a short piece about this as part of the iHuman network here in Sheffield. So we ran a workshop and we called Humanity Under Duress. And uh, I raised a kind of philosophical question that came out of some translation exercises um, that I was doing, which related to what the difference between the word human and person might be. So for those listeners who aren't aware, the word human actually has a fairly recent place within both the English language, but even more so recent within languages such as Japanese and Chinese. So for example, the, the first use of the, the Japanese kind of official term for uh, human, uh, jinri, is mm, only introduced in the late 19th century through the first Tokyo Anthropological Society. Prior to that point, the word person, I, I argue, is much more reflective of a lot of the terms that you might see like ningen or hito um, in Japanese or renjian and, and, and ren in Chinese. And the differences between the two are they're slightly kind of etymological. So human comes from an emphasis on the kind of substances that make up what we are as a species. So um, it, it's supposed to have ties to hummus, like the, uh, like, so the idea of mud or earth, so of the earth. Whereas person, I think, actually speaks much more clearly to how we actually go about our daily lives. And sometimes the kind of ambivalent or ambiguous relationship we have with things that we might not consider human, but we might still consider a person. So, for example, uh, just on a kind of really light version of that, often people would say, oh, um, my pet is a person. And if you ask them that way, um, <laughs> they might actually agree. And, and that's because I think personhood is more about how people act, what they do, and how we take those actions and, and various things like that as a sign that they're a living, breathing, thinking and feeling entity. So the reason why I like to say that anthropology is the study of what it means to be a person is because A, the methods we use are much more on that kind of level of observing what people do and say and tell us, but also because I think that a lot of the time in anthropology, so for example, if, we, if somebody was doing the anthropology of religion in Japan, you're often dealing with not just human beings, but there might be other kinds of cultural entities that are part of that world that might still be considered people in a, in, in a certain sense, even if they're not factually or, or necessarily physiologically human. So, you know, a lot of the recent work by people such as Daniel White and uh, Jennifer Robertson on issues of robotics, for example, in Japan, blur that line between the human and the person. And that's why I think that I'm starting to prefer to use that word person. I see. So, yeah, this might feed into studies around migrant communities too. To draw back to the to the focus in your research profile, you've written that you spent most of your twenties and early thirties living in Beijing, Taipei, Tokyo, and Kyoto. Was this how you first engaged with migrant communities by living within them? And how has your own experience as a migrant in East Asia shaped your research? So I should say that uh, migrant communities have always been part of my life. So I grew up in Canberra in Australia, um, which is the capital for those of you who aren't aware. And while Canberra isn't as diverse as some parts of Melbourne or Sydney, I was lucky enough to grow up in a fairly diverse community in terms of ethnicity. So it was less diverse in terms of class because uh, a lot of the people who work in Canberra, you know, sort of 
civil servants and diplomat children and things like that. So it's quite middle class. But I had lots of friends from other parts of the world. So going to primary school and high school, I had particularly had friends from China, Taiwan, Japan, Thailand and Lebanon, for example. And most of the, the white folks that I grew up with also had fairly recent migration histories. So, you know, Australia is a, a former colony. And um, so most of the people, including myself and my mother, had actually moved not too recently. So my mother moved from the UK to Australia when she was younger. And so in that sense, we were a migrant family, but also lots of my friends' parents um, had migrated from all parts of the world. So migration has always been a big part of how I imagined my place in the world and how I imagined what communities were made up of. And these experiences often made me even question, like kind of raise some interesting philosophical questions about what a migrant and what a community is. And that's kind of what drew me to starting to look into these issues in East Asia. So I first uh, sort of lived in Beijing um, as my first kind of time away. But while I was living in Beijing, my uh, roommate was from Okinawa and uh, I'd studied Japanese in high school. So I was kind of curious about Japan as well. And then since then, you know, I moved to Taipei to teach English. I did field work in Tokyo and I lived with my partner in Kyoto. And so each of these different circumstances kind of raised uh, issues around what it means to move and what it means to try and make new connections when you've just moved. And so my experiences in terms of um, living with migrants and also as a migrant in East Asia has really kind of raised big questions about what it means to make new connections and make new communities. And I think that's kind of underpinned a lot of my research, this ongoing question about how it is that we imagine our relationship with each other as human beings or people. Fascinating. And it's so, so applicable beyond just academia, this sort of research. Let's look at the migrant communities of Tokyo then. Your work in Ikebukuro has brought you into contact with Filipinos, Vietnamese, Senegalese, and Zainichi Koreans. Is there any commonality to the migration experience of all these groups living in the same area, or do they strictly keep to their own communities, or is there a degree of unity as non-Japanese? Um, so I would say that like uh, a lot of these different ethnic groups have their own localities within the Japanese context. So, um, you know, we often talk about Shinokubo as being like a, a Korea town um, and, you know, the role of um, Nikkei Brazilians in areas like Shizuoka, etc. So there definitely are different kinds of communities across Japan that have much stronger kind of single ethnic ties. But Ikebukuro is a kind of interesting place. So it kind of depends on where you're looking. Ikebukuro has often been dubbed an unofficial Chinatown within Tokyo. And uh, I was originally attracted to that context because in 2008, a small group of Chinese business owners actually petitioned the local government to have a section of the northwest of Ikebukuro recognized as um, the new Tokyo Chinatown. Um, and so I kind of came into my research um, just after that proposal and discovered that 
actually a lot of people within that particular Chinese network were against the idea themselves. They didn't really like the idea of what a Chinatown was. And what this suggested to me is that a lot of the people living there were trying to imagine different ways of developing a sense of commonality within that migrant experience. But the other element is that Ikebukuro is a very particular kind of space, which I've written a little bit about in like a special issue, for example, that Mark Pendleton and I did on the Yamanote line, where Ikebukuro has been a kind of in-between space, which has attracted a lot of entertainment and service industries, which end up being quite mixed. So for example, I did a lot of work in bars and other kinds of nightlife entertainment. And in those contexts, you'll often see very diverse groups of people working together. So not just in terms of non-Japanese people, as there were actually a lot of Japanese people working in that context, but they were Japanese people who felt like they didn't fit in within the kind of wider expectations and structures that we might think of when we talk about like so-called Japanese society. So there's that element there and there were lots of people kind of working together in their sense of being nightlife workers and also in the sense of being um, workers within Ikebukuro, which is kind of seen as a bit liminal or in between. That all being said, uh, Ikebukuro's northwestern side has mostly Chinese-owned businesses um, within that particular area. There's about more than 300. Um, so there was a predominance of Chinese people within that context. Um, but outside of those um, sorts of contexts, there were also lots of uh, Zainichi Koreans. There was a growing number of Vietnamese people working alongside Chinese business owners. And a part of that was because there are quite a few Sino-Vietnamese people moving to Japan at the moment. Senegalese people and other migrants from Africa working particularly in uh, security style jobs. And um, quite a few of the people, particularly the Japanese people I knew in Ikebukuro, who were kind of old timers, were married to people from the Philippines, etc. And so there was, there was a really interesting kind of Ikebukuro community, I would say. Now, that's Ikebukuro. I should say that outside of that context, it can be quite a different story. So I know, for example, that Zainichi Koreans tend to have a much stronger sense of community than the Chinese networks that I worked with. And there are a lot of good historical reasons for that, but also because they put a lot of effort into um, constructing that Zainichi identity and pushing the envelope in terms of the policies that Japan has around immigration and the recognition of multi-generational immigrants. Similarly, there are other ways in which communities are made strong. So some of the people from Fujian in China that I knew um, had converted to Christianity and they actually had quite strong ties with Filipinos and some of the African migrants who are also Christians. So there are different ways of making connections. I wouldn't say that it was necessarily their identity as being non-Japanese, but it's about not fitting into the kind of dominant imagination of what Japanese society and culture is that creates these networks that are often quite mixed. I see. So what is it about Ikebukuro that has made it a hub for migrant communities? Is it simply down to being a cheap neighborhood near the center of Tokyo or are there historical reasons for it? So, I mean, Ikebukuro is this really interesting place. It, it didn't really exist prior to the early 20th century or late 19th century. 
one of the, the first installations there was actually the Sugamo prison, which listeners might know as being the site of some of the post-45 uh, war crime trials. But it was on the outskirts of like historical Tokyo. So um, from the Meiji Restoration onwards, there wasn't really that much going on there. But as they started to try and create connections to the kind of agricultural land within the, the kind of north of Tokyo, um, up in Saitama and those areas, and connecting that to Yokohama so that you could have trade going through there, there started to become an emerging sense of this kind of crossroads point that needed some kind of infrastructure there. And so Ikebukuro Station was a kind of an accident that was emerged out of the early stages of the Yamanote line. And I think the reason why it's important to understand that is because even though today Ikebukuro is very much at the center of the city in terms of the greater Tokyo um, conurbation, we actually see this kind of reproduction of the imagination as Ikebukuro as being a little bit outside or a little bit of a borderland, a little bit in between. So for example, I don't know if any of the listeners have seen a, a recent film called uh, Fly Me to Saitama. But in that film, for example, there's this kind of comical relationship between Saitama and Tokyo. And Ikebukuro is the kind of main boundary that marks the difference between Tokyo and elsewhere. And so Ikebukuro has always been this place on the periphery of Tokyo, even when geographically it's been located inside. And so you've always seen really interesting communities emerging there. So for example, in the 1930s, um, the Japanese surrealist movement, the Ikebukuro Monpanas formed there. And that was because it was fairly um, cheap land that was able to be turned into like different kinds of studio spaces, etc., for those creatives. In the um, immediate post-war period, because of its closeness to the agricultural interland and also some uh, US SCAP forces bases, there was also a very large black market there, which attracted a whole range of rural to urban migrants in the immediate post-war period. And so there's always been this kind of flow of outsiders or people who don't quite fit in within that space. Now, fast forward that to the 1980s, a lot of the, the real estate in that area was quite dilapidated. So it was considered part of the, the wooden constructed sort of boundary of Tokyo. And so a lot of businesses started up there based on that kind of cheap real estate. As we got out of the 1990s financial crisis, like the East Asian financial crisis, there were a whole range of very cheap places that Chinese migrants were able to buy up. And that's part of the reason why we started seeing more and more migration to that area. It was a cheap place to live, but it kind of, that cheapness comes out of a much longer historical trend surrounding the role of Ikebukuro as a place where a lot of outsiders went anyway. Yeah, so these Chinese migrants you just mentioned, they've taken a central focus in your research, such as your 2018 film, Tokyo Pengyo, which uh, explored how everyday phenomena change the way interpersonal Chinese relations and Sino-Japanese relations are imagined in the current era. What attracts Chinese to migrate to Japan in the first place? And have you seen attitudes amongst Chinese migrants towards Japan change through your research? Yeah, um, so I'm, I've been very lucky that I did my first period of fieldwork from 2009 to 2011 and my second period um, from 2014 to 2016. So 
in, in as much as that's still a relatively short period of time, I've, I've had a bit of a sense of how things have changed. In terms of what attracts Chinese people to move to Japan, it's slightly changed over time. But one of the things that、uh, I think is fairly palpable is that Japan has often stood, and、uh, some people are critical of this interpretation, but I actually think it's quite appropriate. That Japan has often been seen as a kind of alternative modernity, an example of how an East Asian country could be considered modern. And a lot of the Chinese migrants I spoke to would voice this opinion, not so much in justifying why they moved to Japan, but、um, often in, in talking about how Japan might compare to China. In terms of why they actually moved, though, there was a, a, a very big push to popularize going overseas in a variety of ways from China from about 1985 onwards. And that was because that was the first time that a lot of everyday people could、um, actually apply for passports. At the same time, Japan introduced a、um, series of new visas, particularly、um, student migration visas. So, student visas and trainee programs that would allow And justify Chinese people's、um, applications for passports. So, because it's so close, Japan ended up being a more affordable but、um, nonetheless very desirable place to go if you perhaps couldn't go to the US or Australia or the UK, etc. And so, often at that time, people would call Japan the silver path as opposed to the US being the golden path. But over time, so、uh, Gracia Lilfara has argued that. Japan's educational migration system ended up being a form of proxy labor migration. So you had a lot of Chinese people moving to study at a language school or in a, a local Japanese university, but ended up doing a lot of work on the side in order to support themselves. And this kind of created the initial networks that have now fostered ongoing chains of migration. More recently, though,、um, so in 2009, when I interviewed people about why they moved to Japan, it was often、uh, not so much about、um, them making decisions for themselves, but actually a lot of the time it was young Chinese people whose academic results weren't perhaps the best, and their parents had invested a lot of money in trying to work out an alternative way for them to be able to go to a good university. So a lot of the time when I talked to them then, they, they didn't really voice. It, as though it was a decision that they made, but rather a kind of inevitability that they were going to go overseas and Japan was the best option. But more recently, in my more recent work, I've met a lot of young Chinese people who have artistic aspirations and they see Japan as a really interesting context for thinking about how they can be sort of globally relevant artists. Globally relevant musicians and, and creatives or entrepreneurs that can still kind of see it through the lens of being from East Asia. So there's more and more people who are inspired by the kind of cultural industries and creative industries of Japan. And so that's one of the recent trends I've seen. A lot more recently, Chinese people kind of seeing Japan as a way of thinking about what it means to be creative and global and relevant in that context. Now, how this translates to Chinese、um, perceptions to Japan, it, it's a kind of tricky one because the people I speak to are the people who've chosen or, or ended up in Japan. And so they don't tend to have as negative an attitude towards Japan as you might 
see in people, for example, who are just, you know, living in Beijing in their everyday lives. I should note that, you know, China and Japan, according to some of the kind of global attitude surveys, such as those conducted by Pew, like they do have some of the poorest attitudes of each other, although in recent years that has been improving, particularly on the Chinese side. So I do think that we're seeing Chinese attitudes towards Japan changing. And in particular, I often uh, get really heartened by hearing the, the positive stories that a lot of the young Chinese people I've worked with tell me about Japan. In particular, I'm very interested in thinking about this kind of Sino-Japanese context and Sino-Japanese relations from a migration perspective where, you know, as much as we might talk about the governments being very much in conflict with each other, we're still seeing huge numbers of Chinese people moving to Japan and Japanese people living and working in China. Obviously, under the current COVID situation, that's a slightly different story, but we are seeing increasing levels of mobility, whether it's tourism, migration, um, trade, etc. They're so crucial towards each other. And I think sometimes we can underplay the strength of those ties in light of some of the kind of more governmental level declarations that you often see. It's a very refreshing perspective on uh, Sino-Japanese relations on a more person-to-person basis through uh, anthropology and migrant communities. So looking at the inevitable COVID topic, uh, COVID-19 has seen the Japanese government implement what could be called a modern sakoku or closing of the country, imposing extremely strict laws on non-Japanese travel to and from the archipelago. Have you been in touch with the migrant communities of Ikebukuro over the crisis? And if so, how has life as a migrant in COVID-era Japan changed? So I have been in touch with some of my uh, closer interlocutors, so the people I did interviews and fieldwork with over the COVID period. I wouldn't want to say it's a, a representative sample, but um, I've followed a lot of their trials and tribulations via social media in particular and spoken to them personally. And in the early stages, a few of the people I, I know even made some really uh, heartening short videos documenting words of hope for Wuhan. So, uh, you know, there were actually quite a few um, small Chinese media companies in Japan uh, who went around and interviewed local Japanese business owners and this was when the virus was just seen as like a Chinese phenomenon. And there was really actually quite a big sign of hope at that time. Now, not soon after that, there was unfortunately quite a lot of significant anti-Chinese sentiment, particularly in places like Twitter. And that was partly because uh, a lot of Chinese travelers, including many people I know, started um, buying up things like masks and um, other commodities, engaging in a, a practice that is kind of popularly called bakugai, explosive shopping um, in Japan, to send those commodities back to China. So I don't know if people can remember as far back as, you know, early February, but, you know, there was a, a real panic amongst the, the Chinese speaking networks that there weren't going to be enough reliable and safe masks and other kinds of um, consumables within places like Wuhan. So there were a lot of people buying up those things partly to make a profit. I would be lying if I didn't see, see people going, you know, making kind of jokes about they're going to become rich by selling masks um, on various online um, <laughs> platforms in, in China. But, uh, but, you know, I think these early activities caused a spike in anti-Chinese sentiment. I even 
remember seeing a couple of tweets calling it bioterrorism, to buying up masks in 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 pharmacies and things like that. But to be honest, though, some of the most uh, some of the people most critical of other Chinese people are Chinese migrants themselves. So a lot of the people I know who lived in Japan for you know five to ten years would actually be the most critical of people buying up and con- conducting bakugai. So it's hard to say exactly what the、um, total migrant experience was among the networks that I work with. One thing I should say, though, is in in terms of the travel restrictions that Japan introduced, the Chinese migrant experience I think differs a little bit to many of the other people that I've spoken to who I know live and work in Japan. So most of the Chinese people I spoke to actually accepted that these sorts of measures were necessary, and some of them were actually calling for them well before Japan actually implemented them. And I think this is partly because similar actions had already been implemented in China. If if people recall, China、um, did implement a lockdown and actually had quite severe travel restrictions fairly early on in the pandemic. And you know, at the time,、uh, people were very critical of that. But they appeared necessary, particularly in the eyes of many of the Chinese people I spoke to. I have a few pet theories as to why most of the Chinese people I spoke to are a bit more accepting of these sorts of actions,、um, but nothing really backed by actual research right now. So it, I, I wouldn't want to claim it's representative. But nonetheless, well. Many of the people I know who live and work in Japan, particularly those from what we might call OECD、uh, liberal democracies,、um, like UK, Ireland, Australia, and the US, etc., while a lot of those people were very critical of the travel restrictions, particularly those with permanent residency, and I think they had every right to be critical of them. I think, from the perspective of networks of people such as those from China, who don't always have the same. Rights to freedom of movement. You know, it's much harder to move freely with a Chinese passport, and who also perhaps a little bit more accepting of top-down decisions when you're kind of facing crises. Because of those reasons, I think that a lot of the Chinese people I spoke to didn't express as much outrage around these measures. Now, this isn't to say that I didn't see a few posts by Chinese folks I know who were critical of the policy,、um, and this was particularly Apparent among people who had actually lived in Japan quite a long time and had permanent residency, and really Japan was their home. So all of their family members were there, and, and it created a lot of、um, difficulties. But among those people who hadn't been there quite so long, maybe five years or so, overall there are actually more people calling for the Japanese government to bring in stricter measures than there were people complaining about the closing of the borders of Japan. And I still see that,、um, you know, in the the slight increase in cases that we're seeing at the moment in the Tokyo context,、um, on like social media platforms such as WeChat, and also among the Chinese people I know who use platforms such as Facebook, they are really talking more about how actually Japan needs to take this more seriously because although the borders were closed on Japan domestically, a lot of things still remained open and, and accessible in ways that. You know, having just gone into another lockdown in the UK, we might see is the dream. So it's a very complicated picture. And amongst the Chinese migrants I know, they weren't as critical as some of the other people. And that is not to say that those criticisms aren't very valid and warranted. But I think it's kind of interesting to think about what different migrant groups might 
think about in terms of the experience of being governed, perhaps, and what that might mean in terms of how they interpret governmental decisions. Well, thank you, Jamie, for answering all those questions. You've really given a really fresh new insight into looking at transnational movements and relations between nationalities that on a more personal level rather than the political. What are you working on right now? Do you have any projects on the go at the moment? Uh, yeah, so currently I'm uh, just finishing a paper on the role of digital media in shaping young Chinese perceptions of Japan from a gender and sexuality perspective. And in particular, I'm um, just writing a little bit about how for a lot of the young Chinese people I knew, they, they sort of saw their time in Japan, particularly Tokyo, this big cosmopolitan city, as an opportunity to explore slightly different gender and sexuality identities than they might have at home. So um, this is kind of building on the work by one of my friends and colleagues, Thomas Badenet, who talked about this in particular in relation to Nichome um, near Shinjuku. For the listeners who don't know, that is one of um, Tokyo's major gay bar districts. But I kind of wanted to open that topic out to include some of my observations around, for example, heterosexual um, young Chinese women who kind of got interested in different other kinds of sexual cultures, such as um, kink cultures, et cetera, and the role of um, Japanese popular culture in kind of painting this picture of Japan as a, a kindly, slightly sexually transgressive place. So yeah, that, that's some of the stuff I'm working on at the moment, um, which again kind of speaks to this issue of Sino-Japanese relations, but not from necessarily a governmental perspective, but one from how do actually everyday people perceive each other and what does that mean in terms of how they might imagine their sense of belonging and community and their own identities? Well, that sounds fascinating. I can't wait to see it when it comes out. Great. Thanks for taking the time to join us, Jamie. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ali. And uh, thanks to the University of East Anglia, the Sainsbury Institute, and the Center for Japanese Studies. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be invited to come along and have a little bit of a chat about my research. You can find a link to Jamie's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be joined by Dr. Paulina Colata, lecturer in religious studies at Manchester University to discuss lived religion in rural Japan, exploring the active role Buddhism and its institutions play in day-to-day life in such issues as rural depopulation. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.